Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. To the Latin American History Podcast, Episode 29 The Conquest of the Caribbean. Last episode, we saw several journeys of exploration take place, but with the exception of Ojeda's catastrophic efforts in La Guajira, Spanish colonization had not spread beyond the island of Hispaniola. This was about to change. It started, on paper at least, with our old friend Vicente Pinzon. In the last episode, we followed him as he explored the northern coastline of Brazil, the Guyanas and Venezuela. This trip had done much for his reputation, but it had cost him financially. He was knighted by an impressed monarchy, but forced to spend a few years rebuilding his financial status. The monarchy actually went further than this, and in 1506 they awarded him the rights to colonise the island of San Juan, which neighbours Hispaniola and which we now know as Puerto Rico. Interestingly, the city which he was supposed to found was referred to as Puerto Rico, while the island was San Juan Bautista. Today the island is Puerto Rico, and the capital is San Juan. I'm not sure how this name swap came about, but it's a mildly amusing little aside. San Juan was not the first place he had been named governor of. He had been given the rights to colonise the places he had discovered, but he had been unable to do so because of his financial situation. These rights then lapsed, and the crown gave him Puerto Rico instead. I have been unable to find out why, but once again Pinzon did not take up his new role. The logical assumption is that once again he could not afford to. A couple of years later, in 1508, he was ready to set off again, but only as second-in-command to a man named Juan Díaz de Solis, Thanks to the work of Columbus, Pinzon, Ojeda and Bastides, the Spanish knew that there was no route past the American mainland from modern-day Honduras down to Brazil. Still determined to find the Spice Islands, King Ferdinand commissioned de Solis to try heading up north. The origins of de Solis are not completely clear. Some say that he was from Sevilla, whereas others think that he was Portuguese. He had spent his early years working as a sailor, often venturing down the African coast. This work helped him build a reputation, and after working for the Portuguese and the French, he fell in with the Spanish. 
De Solis and Pinzon set off on the 29th of June and crossed the Atlantic to Hispaniola. From here they crossed over to the Central American coast before heading north to unexplored territory. In truth, there is not much to say about this expedition. It doesn't seem to have produced any primary sources, and they were back in Spain by August of the next year. We do know, however, that they explored the coasts of Honduras and Belize, as well as the tiny bit of the Caribbean which now belongs to Guatemala, and that they did the same with the Yucatan Peninsula. This makes them the first Europeans to reach Mexico. Pinzon's role in history pretty much ends here. He would do nothing else of note. However, de Solis was just about to reach the peak of his fame. Finishing his story takes us outside of the time frame of this episode, but I want to do it as it will save us coming back to him later. Again, the details of de Solis's life are murky, so it's hard to say anything with complete certainty, but it's possible that he spent some time in prison upon his return to Spain. According to this story, he was found to be in the right in whatever this dispute was about, and he was soon released. If true, this episode cannot have damaged his reputation, as in 1512 he was made the great pilot of Spain. This title had previously been in the possession of Amerigo Vespucci, and it basically put its owner in charge of Spanish exploration efforts. King Ferdinand would then decide to send a solace in the opposite direction to his first expedition, but with the same aim in mind, to find a route around the Americas. This move was controversial, as Brazil sticks out into the Portuguese sphere of influence, as defined by the Treaty of Tordesillas. Although de Solis planned to continue southwards into unknown territory, his route would take him uncomfortably close to the land claimed by Portugal. In the end, he set off in secret, and even more secret was the king's role in financing the expedition. He left southern Spain in 1515, and followed Brazil's coastline down to the Rio de la Plata, the enormous estuary which today separates Argentina and Uruguay, and on which both their capitals sit. By now the coastline had moved far enough to the west to take de Solis back into the Spanish side of the line drawn by the Treaty of Tordesillas. He landed on the Uruguayan side of the estuary and claimed it for Spain. It was here that things started to go wrong for the explorer. To begin with, de Solis and six of his companions were killed by natives in a skirmish of some kind. Having lost their leader, the rest of them decided to return to Spain, but one of the three ships was wrecked at today's Brazilian city of Florianopolis. The other two ships made it home, but many of the stranded sailors were captured by Portuguese men inside Portuguese territory and were taken to Lisbon. What happened to them there is unknown. While Pinzon had been unable to fulfil the royal wish to colonise Puerto Rico, it wasn't long before someone came along who could. In fact, the years 1508 and 1509 saw the real start of Spanish colonisation in the Caribbean, outside of Hispaniola. Ponce de Leon was a man who crammed an incredible amount into a relatively short life. He will become one of the most important conquistadors of the period, an accomplished soldier and a governor. To get all this in, we will tell his story across several episodes. His career in the Americas begins here, however, with the conquest of Puerto Rico. De Leon came from a family of well-respected soldiers, and began by continuing this tradition in Spain. He fought in the conquest of Granada, 
and thus played a part in the completion of the Reconquista. Once this was done, he, like many others, found himself a soldier without an enemy. This led him to the recently discovered Americas, where new opportunities for someone in his line of work were starting to open up. He came over to Hispaniola on the fleet which accompanied Christopher Columbus on his second voyage, and set about building a new life in the colony. The next few years are lost to the historical record, but when Evander arrived and embarked on his campaign of pacification, de Leon's skills were suddenly in demand. He helped defeat the Taino of Hispaniola, and was involved in at least one massacre. In return for his service, he was given land. He used it to raise cattle, and soon started to prosper. Next he found a wife, and started to build a family. This settled life was not for him, however, and he was soon looking for new adventures. The failure of Pinzon to colonise Puerto Rico promised to be just the one he was looking for. Knowing that the monarchy wanted to do it, he offered his service in 1508, and was given permission to found a colony. The conquest of Puerto Rico went fairly smoothly. There appears to have been little real resistance from the Taino, except for a rebellion in 1511, which was quickly put down. The city of San Juan was founded without issue, and de Leon was awarded the governorship soon afterwards. He quickly established the encomienda system, and began expanding from his new capital. A year later, the governor of the Indies, Diego Columbus, decided to colonise the island of Jamaica. Like Puerto Rico and all the Caribbean islands, Jamaica was technically part of his governorship, even if it had not yet been colonised. His father, Christopher Columbus, had explored its coastlines on a couple of occasions during his adventures, and had even spent time stranded there on his fourth expedition. To date, however, no attempt had been made to establish a permanent colony there. The man Diego chose for the job was Juan de Esquivel. De Esquivel had first-hand experience of Jamaica, having been a crew member on Christopher Columbus's second voyage. He had then established himself as an important military commander in Hispaniola, leading the pacification of today's Igüey province. When the Taino rebelled there soon afterwards, de Esquivel returned alongside Ponce de Leon, and defeated them again. De Las Casas singles de Esquivel out for his behaviour during these campaigns, claiming him to be particularly cruel. He arrived in Jamaica with 80 settlers, and built a colony at a place he named Sevilla de la Nueva, in the middle of the island's northern coast. Here he repeated the aggressive pacification tactics he had used in Hispaniola, and quickly brought the island under his control. Not much else is known about the very earliest years of the Jamaican colony, but we do know that the settlers were soon disappointed that there was no gold, leading them to turn to livestock farming. We also know that his heavy-handedness led to de Esquivel being replaced as governor in 1513. He would die on the island... He would die in Jamaica a year later. The fact that not much is known about the conquest of Jamaica, as well as that of Puerto Rico, suggests that they were relatively easy affairs. It goes to show how much easier colonisation was once a home base in the area had been properly established. Just over a decade earlier, the colonisation of Hispaniola had been an enormous struggle, with colonists dying and leaving in their droves, as well as several failed attempts being made to found a settlement. 
While some settlers probably still died of disease in the new Spanish territories, the conquests of these two islands are remarkable for their lack of these problems. After these successes, in 1511, the last of the large Caribbean islands was in the sight of the Spaniards, Cuba. The man tasked with doing it was Diego Velázquez de Cuella. De Cuella was a man who had done very well out of the conquest of Hispaniola, and one who would do much better in the years to come. Like so many of his contemporaries, he had fought in Europe during his youth, in Italy rather than Granada, and had sought out new adventures in the New World. Like de Leon and de Esquivel, he came with Columbus on his second voyage, and like them, he had fought against the Taino. In return, he was given land, and became a prominent member of the colony. When offered the chance to lead the conquest of Cuba by Governor Diego Columbus, he jumped at it. He made the short hop across the sea with 300 men, and founded a settlement at Baracoa, close to the island's eastern tip. The conquest of Cuba was for the most part remarkably similar to that of Puerto Rico and Jamaica. There was little resistance, and within five years the settlements of Bayamo, Trinidad, Sancti Spiritus, Havana, Puerto Principe, and Santiago de Cuba had all been founded. Despite having Diego Columbus to thank for his conquests, de Cuella sided with the colonists of the island, who did not want to answer to the governor of the Indies. He managed to set up an administrative council with himself at the head, and on matters of government he would answer directly to Spain. I mentioned a few minutes ago that having an established base helped the Spanish in their conquests, but there is another factor which may have helped. By this point, Avando's governorship had come to an end, and his brutal campaigns had finished. De Cuella's second-in-command, a man named Morales, is said to have remarked that if the natives of Cuba knew the details of the treatment of their cousins on Hispaniola, then they would be in low morale and unlikely to put up much resistance. It does indeed seem likely that this information would have reached them, although whether it had the speculated effect is hard to say. We know that the Taino were seafaring people, and so travel between the islands was probably fairly frequent. If some of Hispaniola's Taino had visited other islands in the past, it's hard to imagine that some of them didn't flee to these islands when Evando started massacring them, and the diseases started to take hold. This brings us on to another possible factor. I cannot say for certain in this particular case, but there is research which suggests that disease often travelled faster than conquerors in colonial contexts. You might remember that in the episodes on the Inca, we discussed the possibility that one of their last rulers died of smallpox before the Spanish had even arrived in their empire. When a population is hit by an unexpected and enormous epidemic, it breaks down their societal structures and their ability to resist invasion. This can be as decisive when the invasion comes as superior weaponry and tactics. Again, we don't know if this happened in Jamaica, Puerto Rico and Cuba, but these populations were later decimated by disease, and similar cases have been reported everywhere from the Amazon to Australia. Perhaps some of the Taino fleeing Hispaniola brought old world diseases with them, and unwittingly made the Spanish job easier when they arrived a few years later. We do have concrete evidence for the idea that the Taino were fleeing Hispaniola, 
a cacique named Atwe, is believed to have left the island with a group of followers and landed in Cuba. It was he who put up the most resistance to the Spanish invasion. His story is recounted by de las Casas, and again all the usual caveats to his writings apply. It's probably based on real events, however some of the details may have been exaggerated. On arrival in Cuba, Atue apparently set about warning the Taino there about the Spanish. He wanted them to organise immediately, as a Spanish invasion would surely come eventually. Apparently he had trouble winning recruits, as the stories of brutality he told were considered to be too horrible to be true. When de Cuella did arrive, Atue took to the hills and launched a guerrilla campaign. De Las Casas doesn't give us any real detail, but apparently the resistance lasted around three months before the Spanish found his camp through an act of treachery. Atue was captured and burnt alive. De Las Casas describes this scene with aplomb, giving us a dialogue that any Hollywood director would be proud of. A priest approached him just before the fire was lit, and told him that even at this late hour it was not too late to embrace Christianity, avoid hell, and book a place in heaven. Atue, having not been exposed to the religion before, was silent for a moment, and then asked if Spaniards were admitted to heaven. The priest replied that anyone who embraces God is welcome there, prompting Atue to respond that in that case he would rather go to hell and not spend any more time among the Spaniards. Hearing of de Cuella's campaign, a man named Panfilo de Naves landed in Cuba to assist in the conquest. He came from Jamaica, having just participated in the Spanish invasion there, and was a relative of de Cuella. De Las Casas also came to Cuba and accompanied Naves on his campaigns. It was these experiences which really started to push de Las Casas away from the Spanish cause and entrenched him in his position of sympathy for the Taino. Narvaez went first to the province of Bamayo, pacifying it, before then moving on to Camagüey. Here they apparently faced little resistance, and instead they were greeted at the entrance to each village by the population, a sign that they had accepted that they had no hope of fighting back. It seems that many also decided to embrace Christianity, and de las Casas was kept busy baptising people en masse. This didn't mean that conflict and what we would today call atrocities didn't take place. At a village named Kaunau, the Taino came out to catch a glimpse of these strange conquerors and the previously unknown animals on which they rode. The details of the incident are murky, but apparently it descended into a one-sided slaughter with many Taino ending up dead. De Las Casas was said to be outraged. Once the conquest was complete the Spanish gradually expanded across the island. The encomienda system was set up, and just as in Hispaniola, land was given out to soldiers who had participated in the invasion. Despite his attitude towards the conquest, de las Casas was given land and Tainos to work it. He was said to be kinder to them than his compatriots, but still, this is an example of him taking part in the structure of the encomienda system before he later had a change of heart. So that brought the early Spanish conquests in the Caribbean to an end. In truth, I wish I was able to devote an episode to the conquest of each island covered today. They are all big pieces of land, and Cuba in particular would become an important part of the Spanish Empire. 
Unfortunately, however, source material is hard to come by, and details hard to find. It's for this reason that I've only given a shallow overview of these events. Next time, the Spanish will move on to the mainland. Until then, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo. Thanks for listening. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.